to the tomb in the morning, but the stone had been rolled away. So she hurried to tell the disciples Christ was taken from where he lay. Oh, weep no more in sorrow. He has risen and conquered the grave. He's alive, it is true, as he promised. Oh, rejoice, for he lives today. As her tears flowed like rain in the garden, a clear voice sweetly called her name. Then she turned, for she knew it was Jesus. He's alive just as he claimed. Place your faith in the blood of the Savior, and your sins will be washed away. All the power of death will be broken. Oh, rejoice, for he lives today. Oh, weep no week, I think, for churches, for Christianity, and sometimes we don't often uh, value it as much as, as we ought to. We're going to go ahead and dismiss all the kids ages four years old through fourth grade for children's church, four years old to fourth grade. And while they're heading out, if you don't mind opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 27, Matthew chapter number 27. Matthew chapter number 27. <clears throat> There's a lot to fit in in between the week of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And I don't want to forget to preach on the cross of Christ because I think this is an essential topic to our beliefs. And, and like I said earlier, I think Christianity devalues Easter. We put so much emphasis on Christmas, right? We have a whole month dedicated to it. And why, why is, why is it Christmas is so special to everybody in America? It's because they get presents. It's really greed. That's what it comes down to. Why is it that Easter isn't as special to us as Christmas is? This is why Jesus was born. This is why he came. This is what we celebrate every single Sunday when we gather together. 
And this week, above all weeks, should be special to us as believers. We're going to be talking today about the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ from Matthew chapter number 27. And in this text, Jesus stands in a courtroom on trial for crimes he was accused of by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's go ahead and start in verse number 11, Matthew 27, verse number 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him, Never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now at that feast the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And, and they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will you that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Let's go and open up in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for sending your son to die for our sins. Um, we didn't deserve it. We were enemies. We were antagonistic toward you. None of us wanted what was right. None of us wanted to seek after you. But Lord, you came and you paved the way for us to have our sins forgiven. Lord, we just want to exalt you and lift you up. It is Palm Sunday and you are king, Lord. You are exalted even now. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this text, Pilate's job is to determine if Jesus is guilty, right? Isn't that what a judge is supposed to do? When you have somebody come and stand before you, you are to weigh out the evidence and figure out, is this person guilty? A lot like our court system is today, in theory, okay? So I haven't been in a court system situation where I'm seeing somebody who has been accused of a crime. The closest thing I've come to it is when I got my concealed carry license in Virginia. At that point, I had to stand before a judge and promise I wouldn't shoot anybody and I'd uphold public safety, okay? And then they took me back and they fingerprinted me, and that was it, right? But I know a little bit, largely the same amount that Pastor Carsey's probably knows because of Perry Mason episodes, right? No, okay. So that's my knowledge of the legal system today is, is what I see in these, these dramas like Perry Mason. And that's probably a skewed perspective of what actually goes on in a court system. But when you look at what Pilate had to do in these verses... First of all, he, he had to examine the accused. In verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him questions. He said, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, thou sayest. So he examined Jesus. He also hears the testimony of the witnesses that are against Jesus. In verse number 12, and when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. So Pilate is now hearing the accusations that are being brought against Jesus. In uh, verses 18 through 21, we see Pilate weighing the evidence. He's listened to all the charges, and he's trying to determine what to do about it. And then in verses 24 through 26, he comes up with a charge. It, let's go and read those verses 24 through 26. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, 
And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This was his charge. This was his condemnation of Jesus Christ, his decision for how he was going to handle this situation. But as the trial progresses, Pilate notices that there doesn't seem to be an adequate amount of evidence to convict Jesus Christ. All the grievances that the Jews had against Jesus were matters of their teaching and not Roman legal issues. And Pilate knows this, and he asks the crowd one key question. He asks, why, what evil hath he done? And that's going to be our topic for the message this morning. A, uh, a writer, John Boyer, wrote a fictional account of one who would have observed the trial of Jesus from a Roman perspective, and he wrote these words. Jesus of Nazareth was executed today on the orders of the Roman state. Method of execution? Crucifixion. The charge under Roman law was treason, and under Herodian law, blasphemy against the temple. The evidence against this anarchist was so strong that authorities of both the Roman state and the kingdom of Herod concurred with the arrest and execution, and he was subjected to trial by both governments, and in a rare uprising of spontaneous collection, collective justice, the mass of the people who were gathered for Passover called for his execution as well. The mob affirmed their loyalty to the state, chanting, We have no king but Caesar. Friday's execution ended. A career as an anti-government ah, agitator with a long history of lawlessness. The family was in possession of falsified, illegal, and unsanctioned genealogical records, which claimed to indicate that Jesus was of royal lineage and undermined the legitimate claim of Herod to the throne. The malicious claim, which has been spread widely among the people, is that the king, Herod, is an Edomian and not a Jew. The king is tormented by this claim and laments that shortly after his father's rise to power, the genealogical records, which have certainly proved his legitimate right to reign, perished in a mysterious fire, likely set by anti-government agitators. Jesus' execution was swift and merciless, and his disciples have been scattered. Authorities are confident that his name will be quickly forgotten, while Rome, the eternal city, will last forever. The temple built on the power of the Roman state and Herodian kingship will stand forever. Authorities assure the people that the ultimate punishment on which all state power rests, death by execution, is the final word on this short episode in Roman history. This is from a Roman perspective. And, and when the, Ro the Romans viewed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, they thought that was the end of the story. And you can even hear the irony in these words. Rome will last forever. The temple that Herod built, it'll last forever. It's never going to have any end. And this Jesus will be forgotten in a day. This is a short period of history. But that is not the case. Rome has fallen, the temple has been destroyed, and Jesus Christ still stands. Jesus Christ's name, authority, and power have outlived all that Rome could have ever hoped to have accomplished. And when Pilate looks at this man, he sees a man who has no and he asks, what evil has he done? This is the same question we are going to ask today, and we will take a look at the charges that were made against him by his accusers. Now, in our text, it doesn't tell us what the charges were, right? But we know what those charges were because we've read the rest of the New Testament. We know what these men said about Jesus Christ. The first charge that we're going to see is in Matthew chapter number 12. Matthew chapter number 12. And we're going to ask ourselves, was Jesus guilty? Did he deserve to die? Matthew chapter number 12, starting in verse number 1. 
<clears throat> Matthew ch chapter 12, verse number 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. And he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was hungered, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. And let's stop right there. But the Pharisees ask this basic question. They see Jesus and the disciples, they're walking through a cornfield and they're plucking corn on the Sabbath day and they are eating it, which was forbidden by Jewish law, right? And the Pharisees ask a question. Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful, or they make a statement, not lawful to do upon the Sabbath Day. And there are many instances throughout the life of Jesus where we see him violating the Sabbath. And to most of our American minds, this might seem like, who cares, right? Who cares if you do something on Sunday, Saturday, or any other special holiday? Why does it matter that Jesus did these things on the Sabbath day? But we need to understand why the Pharisees would have thought this was a big deal. Think about this. Exodus chapter 20, verse number 8. One of the Ten Commandments, right? says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Were Jews expected to obey that command? What, would it have been a sin for them to break that command? Yes, it would have. God had commanded the Sabbath day as part of the Ten Commandments that the Jews were to keep. And there were God's commands. And so to break it was to sin against God in their minds. In fact, one of the definitions of sin is disobedience to God or transgressing the law, breaking the law that God had established. So when we get to the life of Jesus Christ and we see Jesus violate the Sabbath, it is natural for the Pharisees to accuse him of sin. And in the life of Christ, Jesus broke the Sabbath many times. But there are two types of circumstances in which he broke it. And he gives his rebuttal, his, his reason for why he does what he does in this text. And we started reading that in verse number three. And he said unto them, have ye not read what David did when he was hungered, and they that were with him, and how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. And so Jesus brings up some Old Testament examples to explain why he is justified to do what he is doing. And the two types of circumstances where Jesus broke the Sabbath, <clears throat> or that Jesus teaches to break the Sabbath, was under extreme need, as we see in the life of David. David, when he was starving, went into the temple, and he ate that which was not lawful for him to, to eat. So there are exceptions, is what Jesus is saying to these, to these rules here. David came in and was in hunger, and, then the, and they that were with him, and he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was only meant to be eaten by the priests. And also notice here that the Sabbath was broken by the, by the priests in verse number five. Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath day the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? That's kind of obvious. I mean, if you're going to have services on a Saturday and in the temple... Somebody's got to perform the work that's being done in the temple. The priests break the Sabbath every, every single Sabbath, okay? And then he continues on 
And he says, but I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. <clears throat> but if ye, have, if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And Jesus is teaching here that God has the right to do whatever he pleases on the Sabbath day. So first of all, the Sabbath was broken in cases of extreme need, okay? But it was also broken in the situation of preserving life in verses 10 through 13. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? They're still harping on the Sabbath day thing, okay? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Why did they ask? That they might accuse him. And he said unto them, what man shall there be among you that shall have not one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath days? Then said he to the, to the man, stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. Jesus violated the Sabbath to save life as well. And so while this, this is a court of law, this isn't just an academic discussion about the Sabbath, right? But what is it that they are truly asking when they accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath? They are actually asking this question. Did Jesus sin by breaking the Sabbath? And that's an important question for us to ask. Did Jesus sin? Was he guilty of sin by breaking the Sabbath? If Jesus committed sin, then he deserved to be punished. And he is not able to save anyone from their sins. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We believe Jesus did not sin. He was sinless. He was perfect. If Jesus had sin, then we have no hope of forgiveness for our sins. If Jesus had sinned, he was a liar. If Jesus had sinned, he was not God. But if he is innocent, we must seriously consider his claim that he is the Messiah. Jesus did not break the, break the Sabbath. Rather, he fulfilled the Sabbath. And Matthew 5, verse 17 says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am, come, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus was the fulfillment of that Sabbath. That Sabbath looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus did not break the Sabbath as he has proven from Old Testament examples. There are cases in which the Sabbath can be violated. The second accusation is found in the same chapter, and this is that Jesus cast out demons by the power of the devil. In Matthew 12, verse number 14, they continue on. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. They couldn't get him on the Sabbath. So they're decided, we've got to do something. And they get together and they try to come up with a plan to destroy Jesus. Verse 15, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And charged them that they should not make him known, that it may be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying. And he continues on. But in verse number 22, he is questioned again. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? 
But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by, the power, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, and then he gives his response here. But these, these Pharisees, they can't get him on the issue of the Sabbath. So they turn to his next miracle, healing a, a, a man that is possessed by a demon who has been in bondage to the devil. So if he says here basically that uh, they, they accuse him of only being able to cast out a demon because he has the power of the devil in his life. And now this makes sense as well, because think about it. If Jesus had this power to do miracles, things that you guys have never done, right? Have you ever cast a demon out of a person? No? Okay. Well, if you saw somebody do that, you would have to ask yourself a logical question. How did they do that, right? There's only two ways that could be done, the power of God or the power of the devil. And the Pharisees have already concluded it ain't the power of God, right? So what does that leave open to them? It's the power of the devil. That's, that's their accusation against Jesus. Either this is the power of God or it is the power of Satan's, uh, Satan. And the Pharisees have already concluded that it can't be God. Jesus refutes this argument. And he says, first of all, in uh, verse number 25, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself sh shall not stand. Jesus' basic argument here is that if this is Satan's power, then Satan's tearing down his own kingdom. Who does that? You know, what politician ever gives up power? <laughs> you know, honestly, what politician ever, ever, uh, ever is willing to break down the, everything that they've worked so hard to accomplish? Satan, who has power over this world, is not going to cast out demons out of people because that's relinquishing his own authority, his own power over that person. Then Jesus asks another question. He says in verse number 26, If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. So Ju Judaism had a practice for demon possession and how to cast people out. And Jewish tradition teaches that evil spirits could be cast out. We don't see a whole lot of that in the Bible closest thing to it is David playing and, and the evil spirit that comes on Saul is soothed. But Jewish teaching and Josephus talks about Jewish exorcisms in which they would have smoke and incantations and they would rebuke the demon and they would try to find out his name and call him out of, of the person. And then they would have a ritualistic baptism. Jesus is not necessarily saying that works. Okay, understand this. He's not saying that. What Jesus is saying is, you're, you guys acknowledge that your children are casting out demons. By what power are they doing it then? If, you, if you're going to accuse me of doing it by the power of devil, why are your children, these other rabbis, these other teachers in Israel, why are they doing the same thing? So Jesus is saying, why is it so strange to think that Jesus would cast out demons when other Jewish rabbis claim to be doing the same thing? And then verse number 29. Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Okay? Jesus is asking this question. If somebody breaks into your house, and you're at home, are they going to steal all of your stuff while you're just wandering around cooking breakfast, uh, um, getting ready for the morning, watching the news? No. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to tie you up, or they're going to make you secure. They're going to overpower you. 
so that they can rob you, right? Jesus is saying, if I am casting out demons, I must have had the power to overcome them, to overwhelm them, that I could do so in the first place. And so this charge is serious because the, there are false teachers and false prophets out there who do things by the power of the devil, right? Jesus' ministry, though, was to set people free from the power of sin and Satan. If he was really Satan's messenger, then he is not the Messiah. Is that not a fair charge to make against Jesus? But Jesus has just shown that this doesn't even logically make sense, that he would call out demons by the power of the devil. The third charge that we see that the Pharisees made against Jesus Christ during his lifetime is that it was evil or blasphemy for Jesus to claim to be God. Let's turn to John chapter 8 for this one. John chapter number 8. <clears throat> Reading uh, verse 53 through 59. John 8, 53 through 59. This is at the end of a speech that Jesus has given, and the Pharisees are questioning him, and, he say, and they say, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his sayings. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and how sayest thou, or how hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto him, them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now here we have a question. They're attacking Jesus there. They don't like what he is saying. And some people have, have stated, uh, one example among them being Bart Ehrman. I don't know if you know that name, but he is a, uh, was a popular textual critic. He actually grew up as a Christian, went to Bible college and seminary, and studied under Bruce Metzger, another textual critic. And then he came to this point where he decided... I'm no longer a Christian. And now what he does is he writes books to try to convert people away from Christianity. And one of his arguments is that Jesus never himself claimed to be God. And, I, and honestly, when we look at passages like this, it's hard to come away with that conclusion, to agree with him that Jesus never claimed to be God. If you look at verse number 24, Jesus said, I, say, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, talking about the Messiah, ye shall die in your sins. Jesus was clearly claiming to be the Messiah. And then in the verses that we just read, 53 through 59, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Now that may not sound like a statement of his divinity, but... Jesus didn't say, before Abraham was, I was, did he? No, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And if you know anything about the names of God and how God has revealed himself in the past, in Exodus, God introduced himself as, I am that I am. That's my name, Yahweh, Jehovah. 
So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he is thus identifying himself as God. And if you, if you doubt the, that, that statement, if you doubt the meaning of this phrase and how much is carried by it, look at their response. What did they do? They picked up stones to kill Jesus because of his statement. They believed that this statement was a statement of his divinity. A couple late chapters later in John chapter number 10, verse 30 through 33. Let's go and turn there. John 10, verse 30 through 33. Again, in the middle of a speech, but we just want to look at Jesus' statement and the response of the Pharisees and the Jews. Verse number 30 says, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Why? Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Why are you going to kill me? What did I do that, that makes you want to kill me? The Jews answered him, saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because, thou, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. The Jews clearly understood Jesus' statements to imply that he was God. I and my Father are one. We are the same. We are of the same essence, the same nature. We are the same person. One of his main, main one of Bart Ehrman's main arguments is that Jesus has never claimed to be God. And I don't think from the book of John you can get that. And, and I think, honestly, Bart Ehrman has, has ignored all the other evidence that we see throughout all the scriptures. We see the, the fact that Jesus took on him the name the Son of Man, which if you look in Daniel 7, this is a term for a divine being who would sit on the throne of the Ancient of Days for all of eternity to rule. We see that Jesus accepted worship. Whereas other prophets and other angelic beings did not accept worship, but Jesus did. Jesus was called God's beloved son by the Father at two different occasions, at his baptism and at his transfiguration. And then we see Jesus forgiving sins, and the Pharisees rightfully ask, who can forgive sins but God, right? And all these things point to the divinity of Jesus Christ. So again, to claim to be God, that's a serious claim, right? If you guys were to come up here and claim, I am God, we would all look at you like you were strange and probably call for the guys with the white coats. Yeah, do they have, still have white coats? I don't know. Okay. Anyways, the white straight jackets and a padded room, right? And we would have you hauled off. So these, none of these claims are flippant claims. They're not irrational claims that were being made against Jesus Christ. But they were wrong. They weren't right. Jesus didn't break the Sabbath. He didn't cast out demons by the power of the devil. And when he claims to be God, it is because he actually is God. If I say I am Jason Shirk, okay, am I crazy for saying I'm Jason Shirk? Just because maybe you don't believe me. Okay, I've gained too many pounds to count after college, and maybe you haven't seen me for years, and you look at me and you say, no, that can't be Jason. But I'm not crazy to claim to be Jason, right? So if God claims to be God... He is not a lunatic. He is not crazy. He is not a liar. He is not guilty of the crimes that he is being accused of. Jesus is either one of three things. He is either a lunatic, he was either crazy, or he is a liar, purposefully out to deceive you and to tell you an untruth, or he must be God. And if Jesus Christ is God, if he is innocent of all these charges that have just been laid against him, then he was convicted and he was crucified unjustly. 
And let's turn back to Matthew chapter number 27 here. Matthew chapter number 27 to see the rest of the story. Matthew 27. 2,000 years ago, we saw the greatest injustice committed in a court of law ever throughout the history of mankind. Jesus stood in, in a court of law accused of guilt, and even the judge couldn't find anything wrong with him. Why? What evil hath he done, is what Pilate asks. Here was a man who only ever did good. He healed the blind. He healed the lame, the sick. He uh, cast demons out of people. He, he did good things for people. He taught things that were good and helpful to people, right? All, everything that Jesus ever did was good. The judge couldn't find anything wrong with him. And yet, what did these people do? In Matthew chapter number 27, we see the end of the story. Verse 22, Pilate said unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? Why, what, what evil has he done? What, what am I supposed to do? If you want, guys want Barnabas, or Barabbas, not Barnabas. If you want Barabbas, what do I do with Jesus? And what does the crowd say? They all cry out, let him be crucified. The crowd, the people, they all, the priests, they all want Jesus Christ to be crucified. So he is crucified. An innocent man was crucified. In verse 26, he was taken and he was beaten. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And so we see here that they, they beat him. And when Romans would oftentimes beat somebody, in fact, in other texts it says they used a whip, and they, and they beat him with the, with the whip, but they would use a cat of nine tails, which was leather with nine straps on it that had chunks of broken glass or metal or different things like that, that would be, as it whipped, it would rip through the flesh as it was drawn back. And so they beat Jesus Christ. They scourged him. And this wasn't just like I punched you, okay? Like Batman, you know, when Batman hits somebody, it goes pow on the screen, right? That wasn't what was happening to Jesus Christ, Okay. He was bitten brutally, beaten brutally and scourged with this whip. They stripped and they mocked him in verses 28 through 29. It says, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. Jesus was the king of the Jews. But they mocked. They made fun of it. In fact, if Pilate was going to, to get away with this injustice, the only way he could get away with it was by playing it up as Jesus was a traitor to the crown. Jesus was a competitor king, and we needed to get rid of him. And so they dress him up in royal robes, and they make a crown of thorns out of long, thorn, thorny needles, and they place it upon his head. They, they implant it into his head. And then they kneel, and they bow, but they don't kneel in their heart. They kneel with just their body, and they mock him, and they pretend, and they make fun of him. Verse number 30, and they spit upon him, and took the reed, and they smote him on the head. So they spit at Jesus Christ, a sign of disdain. And if, if you didn't think that that crown was on there too firmly before, they hit him on the head with a rod. In verse number 34, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he's thirsty, they give him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Think of 
last time you had a paper cut or, and this is nothing compared to Jesus Christ, but a paper cut or a chapped lip and you have some kind of vinegary uh, drink or something like that or that gets put on that cut, how did that feel? Just, just a little bit of that. And you could imagine Jesus Christ is, is scarred. He is, he, I mean, he is uh, mutilated and all that vinegar interacting with those open wounds on his body would have stung. They would not have been a help to him. And they gave him vinegar to drink. And then they hung him on a cross to die of suffocation in verse 35. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. So Jesus is there hanging on the cross, and when you're hanging on a cross, you have to lift yourself up to get air because your whole body is collapsing in on itself. And Jesus Christ and many, many people would have eventually died of suffocation while they hung on that cross. In verse number 46, though, we see the greatest suffering that Jesus faced on the cross. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus took upon himself on the cross our guilt, our sin. And God had turned his back on Jesus Christ, in a sense, in this verse here. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Pilate asked the question we should all be asking. Why did this have to happen? Why did Jesus die? Jesus did not die for any sins that he had committed. He was innocent of all the charges that were laid against him. He died for our sins that we had committed. Now I'm just going to read a few verses here that string together to show this truth. Romans 3 verse 23, we, most of us know it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. Jesus Christ is not. He's the standard we missed. He's the one that we don't measure up to. He was perfect, but not a single one of us in this room was perfect like Jesus Christ. We have all sinned, and we've come short of the glory of God. Romans 5, verse 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His death, the purpose for his death, was us. Jesus died for us. Even when we were enemies, against God. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Jesus Christ came to die to heal us, to forgive us, and to heal us from our sins that have plagued us and caused us to be condemned by a just and a holy God. First Peter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So Jesus Christ died one time on the cross for our sins, that he might bring us to God. With our sin in our lives, we have no access to God. We cannot come to heaven. We cannot be in the presence of God because of that sin. But Jesus Christ died on behalf of our sins to cleanse us, to purge us from those sins so we could have a relationship with God. Jesus died that he might bring us to God. John 14, verse 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You will never be righteous enough to come to the Father. You cannot make up for the sins that you have committed. It won't happen. 
Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 9 says, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We all deserve the wrath of God. Jesus Christ came to make the way so that we could be forgiven and we could have a relationship with him and so that we could be saved from God's wrath through Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your only hope of salvation, your only hope of forgiveness is in Jesus Christ. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. But there is a key word in this text. Therefore, being justified. Justified is another legal term. Jesus died so we could be justified. Justified means to be declared righteous in a court of law to be declared innocent, okay? So why did Jesus die? He didn't die for his own sins. He died because we were guilty and we deserved a punishment. We deserved the wrath of God. But Jesus died so that we could be declared innocent in God's courtroom through faith in him, through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on our behalf and allows God to declare us innocent not on our own merits, but only because of his merits and what he has done for us. So the question we need to ask ourselves this Palm Sunday, we're not going to be in church on Easter, okay? So this Palm Sunday is why did Jesus die? Or we're not going to be in church on the crucifixion day. So let me backtrack on that. We'll be here on Easter, okay? So I hope you guys will be. Okay, but why did Jesus die? As we go into Easter and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his victory over that death, why did he die? So that we could be justified, legally declared righteous before God, and on, not on our own merits, but on his, his merits. Let's go and have a time of invitation this morning. The message is primarily for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. So as we stand and we'll sing um, as, as we stand and the piano plays, I challenge you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, please come forward and let us talk to you. Let us show you how you can know that your sins are forgiven, that you are declared righteous before God.